Uh, good morning. Can you hear me down the back? It's lovely to be back in Penang. It's not my uh, first time here. About uh, eight years ago, my daughter, Pippa, was on the OM ship. Uh, do you remember the OM ship, the Logos Hope? It visited Penang. It traveled the world selling books. It came here about eight years ago. And uh, my wife and I flew from Melbourne to have a week on the ship with Pippa and enjoy your lovely Penang. In fact, uh, we were walking around one of the markets in Penang and my wife, she could see I was having a, a good time. And my wife turned to me and said, oh, you could live here, couldn't you? And I said, yes, I could, but we are still in Melbourne. But maybe one day we'll move to Penang, who knows. Let me pray as we turn to God's word. Father, thank you that your word is living and active and is sharp as a double-edged sword. And we pray now, as we hear your word, we pray that by your spirit, your word will do its work in our lives. And if need be, encourage us to bear fruit for your kingdom. And if need be, Father, rebuke us that we may be ever more faithful in your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you about a novelist you've never heard of who wrote a book that nobody read. His name uh, was Morgan Robertson. And he wrote a book, a novel, in 1898 about a fabulous ship that sailed the Atlantic. It was full of the rich and the easygoing and one night this ship hit an iceberg and sank. And the novel was meant to be like a parable, a parable of life's futility. Here are all these people with all their wealth. It all ends up at the bottom of the ocean. In fact, he called his book Futility. You can find the book on the web. I don't think anybody read it. Fourteen years later, in 1912, a British shipping company called the White Star Line built a ship remarkably like the one that Robertson had invented. The real ship weighed 66,000 tons. Robertson's had weighed 70,000. The real ship was 880 feet long, Robertson's 800. Both had 16 watertight compartments. Both had three large propellers. Both had two large masts. Both could do 24 to 25 knots. And both could carry 3,000 passengers. But both had only a fraction that number of lifeboats because both boats had been labeled unsinkable. On April the 10th, the real ship left Southampton on its maiden voyage, carrying people worth back then 250 million pounds. And she too, as I think you all know, on a cold April night, hit an iceberg and sank. In Robertson's made-up story, the ship hit the iceberg at near midnight. 
The real ship hit the iceberg at 11.40 p.m. The real ship, as you all know, I think, was called the Titanic. Robertson called his make-believe ship the Titan. And nobody read the book. The world has been, I think, intrigued by the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic for over a century. And it wasn't just a glorious, large, luxurious ship. The Titanic was really, in many ways, the symbol of the age. At the turn of the 20th century, it was a time of supreme optimism. We'd made enormous progress in science, industry, technology, and I think we thought we were on the brink of solving all mankind's worst problems. We would solve the problem of war, of, of hunger, of poverty. And it was all summed up in mankind's greatest engineering achievement. We had built a ship that could not sink. Even after it struck the iceberg and people leaving, leaving their cabins, one woman asked a deckhand, excuse me, sir, is this ship really unsinkable? He famously replied, Madam, God himself could not sink this ship. Actually, I, I told this story in my ch a church in Sydney some years ago. There's a man there whose grandfather had helped to build the Titanic. And grandfather told him that coming, about coming home from work one day, very upset, because a man next to him had carved on one of the rivets of the ship these words. I defy God to sink this ship. Be very careful what you say. They, they call it, don't they, an act of God. I think the Titanic is a metaphor. I think, in a sense, we, the human race, are, in a sense, on board a Titanic. Now, we know this as Christians. We know that our world has an end point, that God has fixed a day to judge the world. We don't know when, but in a sense, one day our world will hit the iceberg and sink. We know that. Our Lord is coming back, bringing judgment and the new creation. We know that. So here's the question posed today by our passage. Given that we know that as believers, there is an end point to history, how then do we live? As we sail on board our, our great big SS Earth, the Titanic, heading for the iceberg, how then do we live? And this parable tells us it's both, I think, a thrilling parable and actually quite a sobering parable. Let's turn then to, if you've got there your Bible, to Luke chapter 19. Luke gives us in the first verse two clues as to how to understand this parable. So verse 11, first clue. While they were listening to this. So to what? Well, the previous passage. A lord's in Jericho. He's met Zacchaeus. You all know Zacchaeus, the little man who climbed the tree to see Jesus. Zacchaeus has found salvation. 
Then Jesus says this to the whole crowd, verse 10 of chapter 19. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. I've come today to bring salvation. While they were hearing this, he told a parable. Because Jews thought, you see, that tomorrow would be salvation. When, when the Messiah came and brought in his kingdom, then in the future there'd be salvation. But no, says Jesus. I'm saving people today. Now is the day of salvation. So you see, the background to our parable is salvation. Second clue. He went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. You see, the Jews thought Messiah will come He'll go to Jerusalem, he'll go to the temple, then bring in the end of the age, destroy all God's enemies, all the dispersed Jews will come back home and the kingdom will begin. There's Jesus. Where's he going? To Jerusalem. Where in Jerusalem? To the temple. So they're thinking, oh, the end is almost here. He'll wrap up history. No, says Jesus. My going to Jerusalem is really just the beginning, not the end. So don't get my going there wrong. So he tells a story to correct the impression the end is almost there. It's a simple story about a noble man who's clearly Jesus who goes away, as our Lord has, to receive all authority, to receive a kingdom. He calls together ten servants, or ten slaves. That's, well, that's you and me, those who follow Jesus. He gives each one a miner. Now, a miner is just a, an amount of money. In Matthew's Gospel, it's called the parable of the talents. It's very similar. A miner is around three or four months' wages. So I guess in my country that's around twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. Not not a huge amount, but significant. He gives them a miner. So the miner is first and foremost money. God has given to you and me money, and money is a big theme in Luke's gospel. We have the parable of the rich fool the rich man and Lazarus, the widow's might. And now this one, he's given us money to use for him. But the church has seen these miners, I think, as more than just money. In Matthew, it's, the word is talent. All the talents, all the gifts God has given to us. Gifts of music, gifts of preaching, gifts of accounting, medicine engineering, all, all sorts of gifts God's given to you and me to use for him. So I think the minor is money and all our gifts or talents. But I think it's one more thing. In the parable of the sower, 
The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, why are you speak in such cryptic, puzzling parables? Why not speak more clearly? And Jesus said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom has been given to you, but not to them. The one who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. You, my disciples, know the kingdom secrets. You believers know, you Penang Methodists know, the gospel. You know that, don't you? You know that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know he died on the cross. You know he's coming back. You know these secrets. Those out there don't. You do. Therefore, use your knowledge of the gospel. The one who has is given more. The one who says nothing loses everything. And you find those very same words spoken in this parable to the man who buries his minor. Verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. So what's the minor? Firstly, it's the money God has given us. Secondly, all those gifts and talents God has blessed you with. And thirdly, your and my knowledge of the kingdom secrets of the gospel. And the master's command is a very simple one. Put my money to work. A one translation says, engage in business until I come. I spent uh, 11 years working in Pakistan. I came back to Sydney and I found myself a financial advisor and gave him all my money. There wasn't very much, but I gave him all my money to, well, make money for me. I said to him, his name was Santino, Santino, we meet once a year. I have just one question for you. Show me the money. Show me the money. How much money have you made for me this year? That's your job, to make money, and lots of it, for me. Now, let's imagine, this is not true, but let's imagine one year he said to me, Oh, Mike, we've become good friends over these years. This year is my 20th wedding anniversary and my wife loves Penang. So I've taken your money and we've gone on a holiday to Penang. We've flown business class, stayed in a five-star hotel, went to Trinity Methodist and had a wonderful time. I hope you don't mind. I would say, yes, I do mind very much. I didn't give you my money for a holiday in Penang, thank you very much. Go to jail, go directly to jail, and if you collect $200, it's mine, okay? He said, put my money to work. Use your talents, all I've given you, to build my kingdom. 
It's good to be here with you this morning. You who are of my, by and large, my generation, who share my hair colour. It's nice to be with you. I think the word here for the nine o'clock church at Trinity Methodist. Can I say that? Uh, you may know of the theologian J.I. Packer. He wrote a famous book called Knowing God. He's now, I think, 91. When he was 88, he wrote a book called Finishing Our Course, Guidance from God for Engaging with Our Aging. He says, aging is not for wimps. How should we be found running the last lap of our lives? Well, Packer says, the image of running was central to Paul's understanding of his own life. My contention is that so far as our bodily health allows, we should aim to be found running the last lap of our Christian life, as we would say, flat out. Now, in my country, we have a modern invention called retirement. It's only been around about 100 years. And we take retirement to mean come 65, 60, 55, 45, down tools, travel the world, grow the roses, and just play golf, have a good time. Now, there is in the Bible retirement, rest, it's called heaven. Until then, we serve the Lord. Am I right? I think so. I, I, was, in, I was preaching in Brisbane some years ago on, on the topic of retirement. And at the door, a man shook my hand. He was early 60s. He said, Mike, I took early retirement 24 years ago. He would have been about 38. I said, really? <coughs> I said, <coughs> what have you been doing for the last 24 years? His answer was, oh, just drifting. For 24 years, drifting. I thought, friend, one day it won't be me who asks you. Someone else will ask you. He will say to you, son, I gave you 24 years of generally good health, financial independence, and gifts. How did you spend it? You don't want to say to him, oh, I just drifted. I put my miner in the ground. Can I say, to be blunt, I get discouraged by older people in my churches. Discouraged, deeply discouraged. There are too many drifters. We call them in my country grey nomads. They just spend their years travelling round and round and round Australia for 20 years, drifting. And they're servants of Jesus. I was in Perth uh, preaching in Perth some years ago in an evening service and a man was there, a Baptist pastor. He was soon to move to Perth to pastor a church. In the morning, he went to the church that soon he would pastor. 
They just sat in the back and just listened to the service. There was a guest preacher that morning, a man in a wheelchair. He gave his sermon, he closed in prayer, and there and then dropped dead in the service. Now that's a sermon you'll never forget, right? What an impact. Drop dead in the service. Now, that's very sad, but I thought as a preacher, what a way to go. As a preacher, preaching the sermon, in the saddle, firing my bullets, and then go to heaven. What a way to go. To die preaching Christ. It, it doesn't get better than that. That's our Lord's word to us. All of us here today, whatever the colour of your hair, put my money to work. Engage in business until I come. Then we have the response. There were ten men, but the parable speaks of only three. Two were, to varying degrees, faithful. One made ten minors, one made five, and they are rewarded abundantly. Take charge of ten cities. Take charge of five. So it seems fairly clear in the age to come, we will work. Some are given more responsibility. It's true in life here, I think. If you're in a company and you run your department well, you're made the section head. Run the section well, you may be the CEO. That's kind of the picture here. Blessed in the age to come with more responsibility. But there's another man. Now we're not told he was an idolater or an adulterer or a thief. He didn't beat his wife and children. He just did nothing. He just built bigger and bigger barns. He just saw one day a man by the roadside, beaten and bruised, and just walked on by. He had the resources to make a difference in people's lives and did nothing. I think he drifted. And he's cast out. He's not rebuked. He's cast out. He was a fruitless tree. Which, in our Lord's terms, is cut down, thrown into the fire, and burnt. Now, we know who the nobleman is. We know who the servants are. We know what the miners are. But Lord, what's the profit you want from us? What's these ten miners more? That's where the context is so important. While they were listening to this. The context is salvation. That's the great theme of Luke's Gospel. It begins with Mary's song, who rejoices in God my Saviour. It ends with a command, go and proclaim forgiveness. The whole context of Luke is salvation. Here's the prophet 
the Lord wants from us. Lives touched by you and me for Jesus' sake, for eternity. Some years ago, I led a mission to northwest Australia to a, a seaport called Dampier. It's our second biggest seaport. And by the seaport is what's called a seafarer's mission run by the churches. A ship docks at the port, a bus takes the sailors to the mission, and they can spend the evening there. It's very nice. Uh, there's a shop, they can buy food, they can buy gifts, they can play pool or watch TV. And the Christians walk around amongst these sailors and just share their faith with them. One of our students, a young Chinese boy called Scott, spent the evening with a 50-year-old Indian man and shared with him his faith. He gave the man a Bible and Scott prayed for him and the man sailed away to South Africa. About two months later, Scott received a letter from this man, a man of another faith. I'll share it with you. Dear loving Scott, I'm very anxious to write to you that your prayer has been rewarded by the loving Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who is longing to pour his blessings on me. Now I have enough courage to accept Jesus as my Saviour for the rest of my life. Let me declare before you that I pray daily in front of Jesus Christ. Be praises upon Father, Son, and Spirit. I declare before you that I think that it is because of your prayer I could believe Jesus as my Saviour. I have visited so many seafarers' clubs throughout the world in the last 23 years of my sea life, but took the Holy Bible only one time, but I did not read it or believe it. Though I have had inner concerns develop later to accept and believe in the good news, only this time I started reading the Bible with great enthusiasm and great spirit. I think that it is because of the power and love I got from your prayer for me. Now I understand the truth and humbly accept that true love comes from Heavenly Father. Now I accept Jesus Christ as Son of Heavenly Father to follow him forever. Now I believe my Lord Jesus Christ has made a journey to die for me with love unutterable. This man will go back one day to his home to a place where it will be very hard to be a Christian. His family may kill him or reject him. They may take away his children. He may lose his job. The point is this. He will need, in the years ahead, many, many more Scots to teach him, to pray for him, to care for him, that he continues as a disciple of Christ. That's what our Lord wants. What did Scott do? 
he prayed for him. Can you do that? Can you just simply pray for someone? Or give some money to help them? Provide a meal? Be there when they're lonely? Teach Sunday school? Help in the daycare? That's what our Lord wants. He's given you and me money and gifts and the gospel. His word is clear. Beloved, put this money to work. Touch lives for my sake for eternity. I love the story of a woman, her name is Evelyn Brown. Grew up in England in the late 19th century. Became a missionary to India. A single woman. She worked there in what was called the Death Mountains. She met their husband, Jesse. They had two children. They ran schools, they ran clinics, they taught the people farming, and they shared Christ. When Jesse was 40, he died. Evelyn went back to Britain, just broken down in pain and grief, but returned to India as a widow. At 65, she fell and broke her hip. Her son, Paul, Paul Brand, said, Mum, you've been here over 40 years. It's time to retire and go home. She said, Paul, if I go home, who will care for these people? Who will tend their wounds? Who will teach their children? Who will share Jesus? When I am replaced, I'll go. Until then I stay. And she did for another 30 years. She died at 95. They wrapped her in a simple white cloth and laid her in the ground. And someone who knew her said she was the most alive person they had ever met. She put the money to work to her dying breath. Friends, I'm not saying this morning, go to the death mountains. On the other hand, put the money to work. Touch lives for Jesus' sake to make a difference to them for eternity. Let me say two things quickly as I, as I wind up. I find this parable inspiring and scary. If you're not inspired or scared, you've missed the point. What happened to that man, that third man, is scary. I'm worried about people in my church, particularly older people, who've believed the world and have downed tools. I worry for them. I think they've lost the fear of God. John Stott wrote a book called The Incomparable Christ. He, he quotes a historian of the 19th century, a time when Christians changed the world. And the historian said, 
that one of the great convictions of Christians 800 years ago was a certainty about an afterlife of rewards and punishments. He says, if one asks how the 19th century English merchant earned the reputation of being the most honest in the world, the answer is because heaven and hell seemed as certain to them as tomorrow's sunset and the last judgment as real as the week's balance sheet. A man called Henry Thornton, a friend of John Newton, was a parliamentarian. One day in Parliament, he voted against the Prime Minister, William Pitt. And Pitt said to him, why did you vote against me today? Thornton said, I voted today so that if my master had come at that moment, I might have been able to give an account of my stewardship. If this is my last sermon, I go back today to Singapore. If, God forbid, the plane crashes, if this is my last sermon, I want to give an account of my stewardship. To say to God, I preached your word faithfully to my dying breath. I want to give an account and be found faithful and fruitful. I want to be, let me end with this, I want to be greedy for God. Not greedy for money, not greedy for fame or acclaim. I want to be greedy for God. To produce for his kingdom as many miners as I can. To bear fruit for Jesus, to touch as I can, as many lives as possible for Jesus' sake for eternity. That's my goal. That's why I'm here. I'd rather be in Melbourne with my lovely Sarah. But I'm here with lovely you. I trust to bless you. I'm greedy for the glory of God. So my dear brothers and sisters, Hear today the words of our loving Master. I've blessed you with money, gifts, the gospel. Put my money to work. Bless others until I come or I call you home. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much. We are the recipients of your grace and salvation. That like Zacchaeus, we are a true son and daughter of Abraham. That when we were lost, you found us. And you blessed us, and you blessed us to be a blessing. So please, I pray, Father, you're right this day your words on our minds, our hearts, and our consciences, that we might indeed use all you've given us to bless others, that on that last day we hear the words, 
we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray this for people's salvation and the glory of Jesus. Amen.